Hi, I'm Takashi Wicks. And I'm Nikhil Thoda. And this is Tuna Pasta, a collection of conversations recorded across the United States where we look for stories and lessons on the road from the people and places we often pass by. This week's episode is a bit different from our regularly scheduled series. The last week prior to recording this, Takashi and I finished our summer jobs in San Francisco, what brought us to the city in the first place, and drove back across the United States to get started with our fall semesters at the University of Florida. Now, we're recording this back in Gainesville, Florida, and we wanted to do an episode commemorating our time in California, the 12 weeks after our cross-country road trip Tuna Pasta is based on, i.e. our destination for Tuna Pasta. So from next week, we'll continue our regularly scheduled weekly episodes, but until then, explore with us for a brief moment, a look back into our time at San Francisco. During my second day in San Francisco, I realized that I had a bit of a logistical issue. I didn't have any transportation around the city. So, I did what any reasonable person would do and went on Craigslist to look for a bike. I found someone who was selling bikes and then did the next most reasonable thing and met up with this person at a shipping container a la business headquarters under Interstate 280 to pick up a bike. Yeah, it was pretty sketchy, but I was pretty relieved to find a very friendly, knowledgeable and enthusiastic man greeting me at the front of Salvation Cycles. Here is Chris. Yeah, hi Nikhil. I'm uh, Christian <laughs> Lavaggi and I grew up here in San Francisco and was a, a professional bike messenger in 1977 when I was in high school and kind of always loved bikes since then. And uh, I now work for Recology. We're one of the preeminent recycling companies and composting companies in, in the United States. And we also run the dump and yeah. here in San Francisco. And one of my missions is, you know, some people do three martinis at lunch. I try and do three dumpsters at lunch. <laughs> so I dive in them, and what I'm hunting for are bikes. And I find them with pretty great regularity, drag them home, fix them up, and then uh, get people like you to make sure their butt's firmly planted on them and ride them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, essentially a bike is, you know, I think our, our answer for society's ills on many different levels. And, you know, I see that a lot of our societal issues go back to internal combustion and either procuring the fuel or the side effects of, you know, being around them too much. So, you know, we've had, uh, well, to be denied, but we've had oil wars. And uh, I've never heard of a bicycle war, have you? <laughs> you Not know? at all. Yeah, ride your bike, you know, lose weight. Uh, you know, our health care issue, families go bankrupt many times because of uh, sudden and unexpected health care costs. What are those related to? They have diet and... Uh, and uh, lifestyle experiences. So ride your bike, eat burritos, you know, don't take statins. Um, you're not gonna have diabetes if you're riding your bike, you know, most of the time I think you'd be uh, processing your sugars better. And then you know, our whole city is getting really congested and built up with all the newfound wealth and the tech coming into the city. There's no room, you know, we've got 45,000 Uber cars on the street, rumored, and, uh, but honestly, ride your bike takes up a lot of money. You can spend put five, six, seven bicycles in the footprint of one car on the street. Think about that, wow. you know? So better density, you move across the city 
as fast, if not faster. Nikhil, I look at you. You're just an image of manliness. You're gonna. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> you're gonna ride fast, you know, and you'll beat the muni bus every time. And chances are you'll beat Uber and put money in your pocket to, you know, spend on flowers and burritos, you know, yeah. wooing the ladies, having fun. Of course. And uh, it's a good way to meet people too. Yeah. It's a sense of community that you don't get when you're walled in your little car. Uh, so those are some of the reasons I like bikes. And it's uh, helping me put my kids through college right now, and uh, which is always good too. I told them they could go to anywhere they wanted to college as long as they rode their bike. So, you <laughs> know, pretty, you, pretty good uh, restriction. Well, you know, if you want to go to, you know, that fancy, fancy East Coast cool, that's cool too, but you better leave 30 days early. Yeah, make sure you pick there. Don't, don't even think about Thanksgiving <laughs> coming home, you know. Well, luckily they stayed local, so. <laughs> so far, so good. That's pretty fun. All right, well, do your shopping here at Salvation Cycles, and uh, we'll, we'll get you a, a, a bike that's basically already realized the embedded energy put into it. Uh, you don't have to have any extractive uh, uh, resources deployed on the bike, and any pollution is already done. Is uh, We're just honoring those embedded resources of that bike and mm -hmm. make sure it's uh, getting out of the road uh, for a good, healthy life. It's going to be safe and fast and fun. Cool. Yeah. And uh, real quick, can you like describe the physical location we're at, where you're, uh, where you set up shop? Yeah, world headquarters of Salvation Cycles. Where we're talking from is uh, directly underneath the freeway. Yeah, we are yeah. we are living the life under the bridge. <laughs> but basically, this is like my fifth place I've been in 15 years. I've salvaged over 4,500 bikes up to now. Huge carbon footprint in terms of people actually ride these. What that means. But anyway. We're under the freeway. Why? Because all the other sites I've been at have been converted or gentrified into condos. Mm -hmm. Okay? A condo at $750,000 for one bedroom pays a lot more than my 20-foot seat container in terms of potential rent. But I think I'm safe. I'm on Caltrain's property here, and I don't think the city's going to let them build uh, condos underneath the freeway at this moment. So, uh, at least until I get my kids through college, I think I'm safe. Cool. So, anyway, that's, that's part of the vibe. It's a little sketchy, I think, to... You know, people who might not know of me or know of this situation, but um, once you get into it, 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 it works out. It, it, uh, you can test ride the bikes here. Yeah, There's really pavement, nice and I store, typically I've got 30 bikes on hand, and uh, they're all ready to roll. I've also got uh, accessories like U-locks and LED lights and uh, complimentary ding-bells with every bike. So, Your signature touch. That's right. You know, got to fill the city streets with music. And yeah. That's one way we do it, you know, rather than honking car horns, you know. I agree. All right. Well, Nikhil, good luck on this. And, yeah, thank uh, you so much. Get a, get a bike. <laughs> For the next coming weeks, Nikhil and I began our summer internships. The whole while we were producing and releasing our first seven episodes of Tuna Pasta, these summer internships were our day job. We would commute through the city, work through the day, come home, and work on the podcast at night. And though Tuna Pasta has been a medium to showcase the stories of people we met on the road, we also wanted to share the stories of the people we worked alongside day by day this summer. Devin Guan was a mentor and a lunch buddy to me during my time at Drawbridge. He was also my boss's boss's boss. Before being the co-founder and CTO of Drawbridge, Devin worked at Yahoo as a technical architect, Netflix, where he created the Netflix Prize, a million-dollar contest to optimize content recommendation, and attended Stanford University to get a graduate degree in electrical engineering for about a semester, after which he dropped out. I wanted to learn more about his journey, so during my last week at Drawbridge, I scheduled some time to meet with him and record a conversation. Here is Devin. Sure. Uh, I'm Devin Guan. I'm from Hong Kong. Cool. And uh, what is your current role right now? 
I'm the CTO and co-founder of Jawbridge. And uh, so, what's been your like? What's been your career path to get you to like this current state you're at right now? So let me think about it. Um, I always enjoy my my first internship was in a small startup, and which the moment I start, they got acquired by a bigger company called Mental Graphics. Mm-hmm. The company itself is called Escalate. Um, it was a very interesting experience for my internship because I, I showed me a little bit of the taste of how a small startup works and then uh, actually picked my appetite to be um, that I have my own company down the road at some point right? and uh, through my um, career I mostly work for big companies with uh, Yahoo with Netflix but also take small steps into like joining small companies like Edmob. Like I think fourteen months out of like into Edmob they also got acquired by Google. <laughs> so if I talk about the um the longest um startup uh, venture, Drawbridge is my longest one. Oh wow. Yeah. And how long has that been? That has been six years and counting. <laughs> So how did you um how did you get involved with Drawbridge? Like how did you meet the CEO and like how did that all I come see. to form? So both of us uh, worked at the Emma before. Mm-hmm. Uh, we worked very much uh, very closely together. Um, it was uh, Kamakshi's first job, uh, and we look at the, at the time mobile advertising. This is like two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. We thought that uh, mobile advertising needs a lot of fixing. I guess that a lot of things become very standard practice in on desktop already. Uh, it's not uh, available uh, on mobile. So at that point, we we're thinking about like, hey, let's fix mobile advertising. Well, when we are talking about this idea, the company got acquired by Google. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and both of us thought that hey, Google knew it all, right? Because yeah. um. They're so big, they're so good, there's so many talented people, they should solve this problem hands down. <laughs> so I said that, I told Kamakshi that, hey, I am not interested in uh, going to work for a company that already solved every problem. Right? Let me go find a fun thing at Netflix and start this machine learning contest. So she went there, um, nine months later, she called me and said, hey, like, Google's messed up. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if this is good for a podcast. <laughs> so um, literally, Google did not solve this problem. Yeah. And there's so many things that can be done to improve the user experience when they uh receive a uh advertisement on mobile. In so we said, well, let's try to do it together, right? So this um the the first problem we're trying to solve is that how do we solve the data problem on mobile advertising. Um, when you look at everybody on mobile at the time, most of them playing Angry Birds, Candy Crush, <laughs> and all these casual games. Um, <clears throat> so there's not much user activity we can draw from. So well, one place that we thought about is that, well, on desktop, there's like at least 20 years of user history already. like from the days that when we have modem dial up AOL all the way to like more recently like search uh, desktop retargeting so we can grab the data and uh, migrate it to mobile then we solve everything right so that's 
that was the initial um, idea of the mm-hmm. company. That's why we call it Drawbridge. Is that we bridge the data from desktop to mobile? I see. Yeah, and and after uh, a couple of years, it felt wow, like actually the bridge can be a two way bridge, right? We can see user movement from mobile because your mobile device are always attached to you, like twenty four seven almost. So, so you can actually see like how people going to coffee shops, like going to um, shopping malls, going to auto dealerships. Uh, and then we can migrate data back to uh, desktop as well to verify like if the the targeting was effective or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was the initial idea of why we want to found the company. That's cool. So uh, backtracking a little bit, when it first started, was it just you and Kamakshi? Yes. And what were those initial days like? Was it difficult to like start a company completely on your own without any like understanding? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> What was we, the experience like? We have, um, like, we initially, just like all, all companies stumble a lot, right? Yeah. So our first bright idea was to build a data analytics shop. Oh, yeah. When there are, like, probably, like, 10,000 of them out there already. <laughs> so we quickly get to the engineering team of five, six people, build our analytic products. And it was like, okay, like, who do we pitch to? So I have a friend working in Disney at a pretty higher level. I said, hey, let's pitch with Disney. Obviously, that didn't go well at all. Disney had been in business for 20, like, over 100 years. Right? Yeah. They, they have their own analytics platform built in already. They have, like, many. And at, at the market at the time, there's so many uh, data platforms. Uh, it's very difficult for us to, as a very small startup, to gain foothold at that point. Mm-hmm. But so we talked to different publishers from like large one like this to all the way to small game developers. But as we talked to every one of them, we found out that every one of them has the no but answers. They said, no, I'm not interested in your solution, but if you can monetize my traffic, that'll be cool. Mm-hmm. So when we get back to into like the incubator under like it's sort of like a basement in uh, KP. We kind of um, discuss it. Hey, like, what do we do, right? Then, then this one idea, like, how much you say? Hey, like, every one, every single one of them asked for like an advertising solution, like an ad serving solution. Why don't we build the ad serving solution as an in to get the data? Mm-hmm. So that's how it's how that's it's cool. Uh, yeah. So so like the when the first the company first started. Like we try very many different things. A lot like, of pivoting, yes, right? Yeah. So at some point, like we just throw enough ideas out, one of them gonna stick. What do you think was like the turning point where you realized that this was actually gonna be a sustainable business? Yeah. Once we uh, have the advertising uh, server running, the ad server running, and we starting to get like the first uh, publisher and the first campaign mm-hmm. running. And we can see the money trending, right? Then we know that uh, this idea is, is sticking. I see. Because uh, you can always add more publishers. You can always add more uh, advertisers into the system and scale it up. Okay, cool. Yeah. cool. Um, so backtracking even further, what do you think it was that um, that sort of convinced you to get into tech? And like you talked a lot about how you kind of like try to stay away from Google and yeah. <laughs> stay away from like the big company kind of system. Like, what do you think it was about? Um, I guess your schooling, your 
um, your past that like made you want to do your own thing? Yeah, so um, when I was in school, like uh, some of my older um, guys from the lab founded uh, Yahoo. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh. So um, that at that time, like I would say that every few weeks they would call me and say, "Hey, come, come join this startup." At that, um, so there's two things prevented me from joining. One is that I'm doing electrical engineering. I'm building chips, and they are building a website. And this this is like the time that nobody knows what that website is about. Uh, it's the free. When I talk, so I didn't want to go, but I was in. I always feel a good vibe when we walk into a small room where people that work very closely together um, have a really tight bonding interaction. Mm -hmm. And I felt that the innovation and the, uh, the design come up really fast when you have a, such a close collaborative environment. Mm -hmm. When you work on a bigger company, the number one concern is that don't break things. So that means that there are a lot more protections, procedures, uh, protocols in place to prevent you from breaking things, right? So the the speed of uh, the speed of innovation is is not as fast as it can be. Right. Yeah. So that um, I think that's the fundamentally that's what um, attracted me to a startup world is that the the um, the way or, or the thinking behind a small startup that they're not afraid to break things. Mm -hmm. they're, they're, they basically, like nowadays they call disruptive, right? They will, <laughs> they want to disrupt things, but uh, in the, like from all my life, I felt like, hey, if you're not afraid to break things, then you can make a lot of things happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's an interesting point of view. And uh, one final question that we asked everybody was, um, in your time uh, working at Drawbridge, what's like the biggest life lesson that you've learned that you'd want to pass on to someone else? Huh, there are so many of them. Well, it's hard, kind of hard to... Um, I would say that um, the most important lesson for someone, let's say that for someone to want to start a company, mm -hmm. I would say the number one thing I want to say uh, to want to focus on is personnel issues because um, as a founder you cannot do everything mm -hmm. you need to you rely on your team to do things right for example I cannot do design I have zero artistic talents <laughs> I cannot do all the coding because like, some of the coding has uh, very specialized right for example front end very specialized DevOps very specialized, machine learning very specialized. Um, so you rely on your team to do it. Mm -hmm. So then once you rely on the team to do it, then you need someone to do it and also in it for you, right? Um, what I meant is that they were motivated, they were innovative, they think about things on their own without being parted by, by uh, the managers. That means it come down to that uh, the old world culture, right? I from my perspective, cultures uh, share value. 
among the team members. Right, yeah. Like so, everybody if everybody's aligned, that like, things get done very easy. That's cool. That's really good. C.C. Messick was one of the other 25 summer fellows I worked alongside at IDEO Colab. Through our mutual appreciation for podcasts, storytelling, and Japanese curry, C.C. and I became close, and with her background of building a startup in Shanghai that was recognized at the G20 Summit and unofficially holding the title as the first Mormon woman to be admitted to UPenn Wharton's MBA program, I knew I wanted to know more about her story. So, the last day of our summer at Colab, we sat in the recording studio and recorded a conversation. This is Cece. Um, my name is Cece Messick, and I am from Hong Kong. Okay. Uh, so what brings you out to San Francisco? Um, I first came out here with uh, my MBA program. I, I go to Wharton, um, and my husband also got a job out here. He works for Facebook right now, and so we're both trying to make it out here in the city. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so how's your experience been with like being in San Francisco or in the Bay Area? Compared to like um, maybe other places that you might have lived, so uh, I I absolutely love it here, and I understand why so many people um, try so desperately to stay out here. Uh, for me, you know, I I, gr- I grew up in Hong Kong, I've lived in Shanghai, and so this does not really feel like a city to me. Even when I'm up in San Francisco, it still feels like a very pretty suburb. You know, <laughs> even in the city. Even in the city. Um, Really? Yeah, so sometimes when I miss home, I like to walk around in like, the financial district a little bit, just so I, I, I love it when um, the buildings almost become like cloud cover, you know, because they're so high. Yeah. And, uh, I like being like an ant on the ground. Really? Yeah, and um, what I miss is like the throngs of like the crowds like pressing all around you during rush hour where you have to be like a little fish swimming upstream, like plug in your iPhone, yeah. I- iPhone and like just go. Um, I miss that energy, I think. Um, but San Francisco has a whole different type of energy uh, where I feel like people derive this um, energy from ideas and just from this uh, concept that like they are literally creating the future. Like I've never seen or been in a city where people are so obsessed about the future and they talk about the future as if, as if it is like here right now. Um, and you get a rea- reality check when you go to the rest of the country when you go abroad and people have never even heard of some of the things like we take for granted here. Uh-huh. For example, like blockchain or artificial <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> or Stuff anything like that, like yeah. that. Um, that people just randomly pepper into conversations here um, as part of like acceptable dinner topics. You know? how, how do you feel about that kind of culture? Like, do you feel it's saturated or do you feel it's like, like a lot of people describe it as like a bubble or something like that? Um, I really enjoy it. I'm somebody who uh, I get really excited about ideas, um, but sometimes I do feel like here we feel like we're changing the world, but at the end of the day, the majority of startups here deal with what I would think are champagne problems. You know, mm-hmm. things that like the top one percent in the world think about, like how do you achieve more productivity through your one email app. Um, so. I think it seems a little bit of um, a silo and a bubble, but I get it. I mean, that's where the money is, right? Yeah. Um, but sometimes it does seem like the world's, like some of the world's top talents here, and these are the problems we're concentrated on when there are so many other bigger pressing things that could affect so many other people, and we don't really focus on those because they're not sexy problems. Yeah. So um, another question, like what kind of, 
what do you think in your past history or what in your story has kind of defined the way that you approach like kind of the tech scene? Um, so after graduation, I... Where did you graduate from? Uh, I graduated from BYU and um, I majored in international relations, which is a lot of political science and economics. And um, I just haphazardly decided to join a startup in China. Yeah. Uh, and where in China? Uh, in Shanghai. And um, I was a second employee there, and it was very, um, it was a fascinating experience, like, to build up a whole startup, like, from scratch. And we were working with brands like Apple and Nike to provide gamified mobile education and factory workers in China. Wait, wait what, what kind of, like, what was kind of the process to do gamification of education? Well, the thinking is, um, uh, these Chinese factory workers, over 70% of them do not have higher than a, a middle school education level. But they're highly literate. Um, and the fascinating thing about them is there are millennials who, like 80% of them, have access to smartphones. Mm -hmm. um, so they completely bulked a lot of what I, a bunch of what I thought were stereotypes about Chinese factory workers um, being subjects of like, people's help and you know things like that it's, it's yeah. not like that at all like they have a lot of dreams and hopes and um they try to achieve a lot of that through technology and so we kind of came up with this concept of um what if we could uh kind of use like help them use those like five minutes of waiting in line in the cafeteria or you know the time after work make it fun but like help them work towards a certificate um where they can get a better job or yeah. to feel a sense of progress and we came up with this idea because this was during the time of um, the Foxconn suicides, you know, where a lot of workers were committing mass suicides, jumping off the buildings together. Um, and and our understanding is, it's not really about working conditions and all that stuff purely. It's it's about this lack of hope and lack of progress. And so I was very inspired from that whole experience um, of just even thinking about technology as this enabler. Um, for people on the bottom of the pyramid to help themselves to build a better life. Mm -hmm. um, instead of coming in from a Western angle of like, oh, we must change your working conditions or your working hours because we think that's what a good life is comprised of. That's not what they want. They want to work more hours so they can go back and build their own businesses. Like They don't want to be a factory worker forever. And so by giving them just even anything as simple as an app that helps them think about the world a little bit differently, it's, it's a sense of hope, I think. Um, and of course, you know, it's it's such a big problem. There are 350 million of them, um, which is the entire population of the United States. And you know, like, <laughs> the, the scale is so different, That's right? Insane. And so I think having that experience and then coming to Silicon Valley um, and, and kind of seeing that like most people are focused on problems that um, maybe don't really touch the rest of the world immediately or um, not necessarily uh, built with people on the bottom of the pyramid in mind, I think that's a very different um, paradigm shift for me. Um, and there's value in different approaches. I'm not saying one is necessarily better than the other, but um, it just seems like there's so much talent here. They could definitely do so much better than our little ragtag team. And, you know, not a lot of people in China could be doing for people who really need and appreciate this technology. Yeah. So with you going to business school and now you're being uh, in San Francisco and having done this summer and having your um, future jobs uh, lined up, what do you kind of hope to do like in San Francisco with your time here? Like what are you trying to get out of it? Get out of my time in San Francisco? 
Mm-hmm. Or what? What do you hope? What? What? what um, motivated the move to San Francisco? And like, what are you like? This is the place that I can do this. I think. I think that's the question that we have, right? Like, is this a place where we can survive and do this? Um, you know, I think for me, um, having spent the bulk of my career kind of working in Shanghai and China, where the tech scene is different um, and budding, um, I think coming here, there was a sense of almost um, this overwhelming like wonder and question of like, wow, like this is it, like this is the mecca of people who want to create technology, uh, technology advances for mm-hmm. the future. Like, can I contribute to this? Um, and I've loved learning from all these different people here, um, from working at Idea of the Summer, and you know, um, I'll be joining Apple next week, which is great. <laughs> yeah, so Monday, right? <laughs> yes, so oh Monday. So um, I've been amazed that um, Silicon Valley is a place not only filled with really smart people, but also tend to be filled with a place of very generous and laid back and humble people where it's all about um, what you can do and people are so eager to teach you and to share. Um, and there was a beauty in that. Uh, and, and and I hope that someday I can start turning around and like helping other people learn um, and we can all create something together. Yeah. yeah, so you feel that community here? Yeah, I do. Um, I, I, I definitely do. I really like how, I mean, it's a standard, like, Californians, like, people are very laid back. And it's not really about, like, where you went to school or, like, what you've done. It's just, like, what you can do now. Yeah. So. Super cool. And the final question uh, that we ask everybody on uh, the podcast is, uh, what is the greatest life lesson that you learned in your time in San Francisco um, that you would want to impart onto someone else? Ooh, that is difficult. <laughs> I've only been here for a year. Still. Um, what is the greatest lesson that I've learned? I think people here tend to be really caught up with what's next. That they don't appreciate what's now and what's present. And I think this is a recurring theme in my life that I am trying to change as well. Um, I think when we're young, we're hustling, we want to get ahead, we have dreams for ourselves, and sometimes we think, oh, things that I say matter to me, for example, my family, um, community service, or whatever it is, um, those things can wait. But you realize that, you know, there, there's this quote I really like um, from this book that it's called How You Measure Life by Clayton Christensen. And he has this quote saying, like, you need to um, plant the tree before you need the shade. And so if I say that at the end of my life, I want to be a person who um, is known to be um, a devoted sibling or like a loving wife or, you know, whatever it is. Um, somebody who contributes to my family, then I need to start making those habits now, regardless of how much I am excited to like build my career and to get to know people and to like create these beautiful things. Um, because those things will come and those things will continue to happen. But the things that ultimately matter the most to you, or the th- things that you think you are, you have to be those things now every single day, step by step. Um, 
um, and that's something I constantly have to remind myself. Thank you so much for listening to our San Francisco special. If you made it this far, here's a food recommendation. If you're ever on Antoma Street in Soma District of San Francisco, walk towards 5th Street and you'll arrive at Box Kitchen. Get the Box Burger. It will change your life. And for our vegetarian listeners, get the falafel patty melt. Equally life-changing. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And also write us a review if you can. It means a lot. You can tweet at us at TunaPastaPod or find us on Facebook. If you want to say hello, email us at hello at tunapastapodcast.org. Also, please visit our beautiful website, tunapastapodcast.org. This episode was produced, edited, and recorded by myself, Nikhil Thoda, and myself, Takashi Wicks. Special thanks to Yasmina Horozovic for editing help, and Luke Olstorn for producing our theme music. Shout out to Jacob Billy. Special thanks also to Chris, Devin, and Cece for the great conversations. We, we really, really appreciate, appreciate it. <laughs> Finally, shout out to Drawbridge and IDEO for our great summer internships. We really appreciate that too. I'm your host, Nikhil Thoda. And Takashi Wicks. Thanks for listening. Okay. So, it's 11.02 right now. Thursday and, night. Yeah, Thursday night, and we just finished editing. And we wanted to talk a little bit about what we took away from our time in San Francisco. Well, yeah, we talked about, like, we wanted to do this kind of retro episode, and we went through all these different interviews that we have with other people, but we also wanted to kind of interview each other, in a sense, and kind of get, like... Um, our takeaways from spending 12 weeks living in the middle of San Francisco. Yeah. So I guess... How do we start this? I'll start with you, Takashi. Um, straight into the life lesson, or...? I guess, yeah. So in your time living in San Francisco, what's the biggest thing that you've learned? You didn't, answer, you didn't ask it right. In your time in San Francisco, mm -hmm. what's the biggest life lesson that Greatest. you What's the greatest life lesson that you've learned that you'd want to pass on to someone else? In part. <laughs> Sorry. Um, should we start there? I feel like that's super difficult. The greatest life lesson that I learned? Well, so can you apply with internships? Yeah. Well, so I think, like, for me, the greatest thing that I learned being in San Francisco... Like, San Francisco stereotypically is seen as kind of, like, from a tech side, like, as this tech bubble. And being in the city, like, that's definitely true. Like, there's... The the city itself, like, creates this kind of innovative culture where it's very much, like, everyone's kind of gunning to change the world at the same time. And I think from that, there's a little bit of frustration that people face. And it's something that's super dangerous. Like, people are always building for the future and not really focusing on the moments currently and themselves currently. And I think I kind of became susceptible to that this summer a bit. And I think the greatest life lesson that I learned is that holding optimism and also understanding the context in where you're at and like what kind of your environment is causing, like what your environment is causing you to react like 
I don't think this is really explained it well. Is this a good life lesson? Good life lesson. Can I restart it? We're keeping this all. No, okay. <laughs> um, I would say, so, to consolidate what I just said. I would say that, like, the greatest life lesson that I learned is that one's own attitude can greatly affect your current happiness. So it's, like, really important to understand that the work that you're doing right now shouldn't be focused on stepping stones. Like, it's not like, oh, this is going to be the stepping stone for the next thing, and this is going to be the next thing. I think the coolest thing with, like, going to... Like, we were in kind of a stressful situation in that we would, like, go to work, work, like, 9 to 5, like, come back home, and then edit this podcast, and we would do that Monday through Thursday night. And we would be staying up late every single night. But the thing was, like, this podcast really doesn't have any impact on our future careers. And so even with that, even though it was something stressful, it was something that was so ingrained on something that just we enjoy in the moment and we wanted to create that it made it that it was something that kind of, like, surpassed that level of stress. It didn't become, become like, a frustrating process and so, like, that was kind of something where it was, like, it wasn't a stepping stone. And that made me realize, like, in the work that you do every day, making sure that there's, like, kind of that love for what you're doing and that appreciation, like, your own appreciation for what you're doing currently, like, that's essential in order to be happy in the way that you're working. And I think that was kind of something that I learned this summer was that, like, stop focusing on, like, where can this take me next? And then focus on with what I have right now, what am I grateful for, and how much do I appreciate it? And once you find that appreciation, and once you change your attitude so that you can kind of exercise that gratitude in the moment, then I think you create stronger things. And like, really, it's like, if you're having fun at work, that's when you're really, really creating the best content and the best stuff that you really could be creating. So yeah. Cool. It's, it's kind of my life lesson. That's awesome. So, to flip it over, Nikhil, with your time in San Francisco, oh, with your time at Drawbridge, or just, yeah, with your time in San Francisco, what is the greatest life lesson that you learned that you want to impart onto someone else? So, I think that, um, kind of similar to what you learned, um, in a sense that other people greatly affect the your perception of reality and the way you um, the way you learn the way you think I think that being in San Francisco like you said we are in kind of like this tech bubble and <clears throat> everyone always has the same mindset where they're trying to get ahead they're trying to succeed in their careers or in their startups or whatever they're doing and I think that overall at least for me that's a very <clears throat> sorry my throat is like <coughs> killing me right now. <laughs> um, Still recording at 11 at night, though. Yeah. But. At least for me, I think that that's a very um, that's a very positive thing to be around the kind of people that are always pushing themselves to be um, like the best versions of themselves, the kind of people that are striving to create, striving to um, make the most of their time, whatever they may be doing. So I'd say that Surrounding yourself with people that push you to grow in an environment that 
encourages that kind of growth is extremely important um, if that's the path that you would want to take in your life. Yeah, but I think it's also important to like make sure to understand awareness of like where you are and kind of be able to look at it and judge like, okay, um, is there merit in this situation? Oh yeah, like, for sure. The people, because like definitely. I think that I also think that um, being in that kind of environment, you're able to like you naturally as human beings you compare yourself to everyone else, right? So being in that environment, you kind of like. <clears throat> What's wrong? I had too many um, taffies. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <coughs> Being in that environment, you are really able to like kind of compare yourself to everyone around you, and you, like you said, you get a um, better sense for like where you're at. And I think that putting yourself in a situation like that kind of allows you to sort of figure out whether this particular thing is something that you want to be doing in the future, or if it's something that you haven't really put as much thought into. And I think that for me personally, um, it sort of advanced that kind of self-awareness of myself as well. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Dang. Would you go back to San Francisco? Oh, for sure. Would you? I think so. There are issues with like the gentrification and especially like the street we were living on, like being yeah. in Soma District, like in Natoma. The, the homeless issue in San Francisco is like very, very strong and kind of sad, but the city itself is like in that transition. I think that that's something that's very interesting in San Francisco is that its current characteristics aren't too strongly defined. And uh, I think it's like current culture isn't strongly defined. Like it was a city that was really developed on these different counterculture movements that occurred on Summer of Love and All. And now it's like really with like it becoming this tech hub it's really trying to find its character and its definition. And I think it's gonna, it's very interesting to see where exactly this city goes and where it'll be allowed to go in the next coming years. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. It's definitely, um, it's unique. It's got a lot of uh, interesting things to it that you won't really find anywhere else. Um, like what? Primarily I'd say, the fact that there's just so much diversity in terms of the population you find. Because when you, like, think about San Francisco, you do think about just, like, the, the tech scene, but it it's a lot more than that. There's so much to the city that um, just describing it as, you know, the tech city doesn't do it justice. There's a really huge art scene. There's, like, an incredible amount of beautiful, like, natural landmarks around it. And beyond the city itself, like, the entire Bay Area is absolutely enormous. It's a whole freaking bay. Yeah. And there's just so many different um, cultures represented there, so many different kinds of people represented there that I think that deducing it to just, like, you know, this hub of tech is not... That doesn't do it justice. Yeah. I love that. Perfect. Cool. cool. Also, shout out to Carl the Fog. We miss you here in Florida. It's really humid. It's hot, dude. Can it's you come? It's really here? hot in Gainesville. So, um, shout out to Carl the Fog. If uh, follow Carl the Fog on Twitter, San Francisco's Fog. We won't include this in the podcast. I think we will. Really? <laughs> Maybe. Oh my god. <laughs> I think we have to. Mm. Integrity. All right. That was solid.